Hello and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. I'm Peter Weinart, a non-resident fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today I'm joined by Ami Ayolon, a retired commander of the Israeli Navy, the former head of the Shin Bet, Israel's top internal security agency, and a former member of the Knesset. Ami is also a co-founder of the nonpartisan Israeli organization Blue and White Future, as well as a co-founder of the People's Voice Peace Initiative, along with Palestinian Sari Nuseve. We'll be using Ami's memoir, which is just out, uh, which is called Friendly Fire, How Israel Became Its Own Worst Enemy and the Hope for Its Future, as a starting point to drawing on Ami's experience to discuss a wide range of topics facing Israel and the Palestinians today. Uh, Ami, thank you so much for, for being with me. Thank you for hosting me. For hosting me. Um, I found this really a, a, a fascinating book, a, a, a very a beautifully written book, and also a, a, a very, I thought, honestly self-reflective book in which you really try to grapple with understanding how you became the person you were and how Israel became the society that it became. And one of the things that you discussed early in the book, but which you come back, came, come back to, which I found very, very interesting, was the notion of what you call kibbutz Zionism. Um, the, the, the kind of the Zionism of which you, that you were raised with. And you talk in particular about how it kind of wanted to shut the door on Jew, the Jewish history of Europe that your parents and many others came from, and also about the way in which it tended to render Palestinians uh, and other Arabs kind of invisible, or at least not to recognize their humanity. So I, I wanted to talk, but of course, it was also something that you revered and turned you into the person you are today. So I wonder if you could talk as how you think about kibbutz Zionism today, both its, its, its value and also its limitations. Okay, thank you very much for uh, what you said about the book, uh, but I, I have to be very honest, I, I personally did not, did not write the book um, it is my story, my personal story, it's uh, my ideas, but the book was written by uh, someone who became a very good friend of mine, uh, David Anthony, and, uh, and he's a writer. So, uh, uh, well, you pa, made a good pa, choice. Sorry? You made a good choice. Right, okay, yes. In retrospect, uh, it's the best choice, but uh, I, I just have to, uh, to make sure that, that the audience uh, will know about it. Um, the way I understand um, the history of my parents and, and, the, and the concept of the, that was created by, uh, by the labor movement at the time uh, under, under the title, um, the, the Zionist concept of the labor party, um, I never asked my parents, but the way I understood from, you know, uh, so many stories uh, that you hear from them. Um, they came to Israel uh, very young. Uh, my father is illegal immigrant and my mother to study in Jerusalem. And, and it was clear to them that they're not going to see any more of their families uh, because um, they, uh, they came to believe uh, when they were, were very young that the Jewish people uh, is facing a, a huge, a huge um, whatever, uh, they didn't call it Holocaust, but it was clear to them that it's a huge danger. And, um, and the only way to save the Jewish, pe the Jewish people is by, by creating um, a state for the, for the Jewish people um, in the land of Israel. Now, um, when they came to the land of Israel, uh, first of all, they did not see the Palestinians. 
Palestinians were there. Uh, but the way I understand it, it's, they, they were so full of ideology. Um, and, and they used to tell themselves, you know, we, we came to a, to a land without people, um, and we are the people without the land, and we own this land because it was given to us thousands of years ago. Uh, this, was in a, this, this was the beginning of the narrative. Now, Zionism was a, a revolution. Uh, only minority within the Jewish people accepted this concept. Um, and, and in a way, they created, first of all, a new future, which is a Jewish statehood, um, a new present. They understood that they are facing a new danger. Uh, most Jews in Europe did not agree with them, but they created a new narrative of the past. They erased 2,000 years of Jewish history, Mishnah, Talmud, in their heroes. They do not mention any rabbi. And they went back 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years, and, and in a way found or created the heroes of the Bible. Samson, Bar Kokhba, they were not mentioned in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. And the way to build this state uh, was based on two pillars, two ideas. One is security and the other one is a settlement. And the meaning is we are going to build a future state for Jewish people in our land that was given to us in Israel. And it will be built wherever we can build a settlement, work the land and defend ourselves. So it was based on settlements and security. It is very, very important for me to, to, to explain it because I was born to, uh, in a kibbutz uh, in the Jordan Valley. Uh, the, the, the fact that the Syrians used to shoot or to bomb our kibbutz every time when our parents tried to work the land uh, east of Magan, um, it, it was, this was a way of life. We spent in, shetler, in, in shelters weeks because we had to defend ourselves. But we were full of the idea that this is our way to build the state of Israel. Now, why it is important? Because uh, I, I was born there. This was my childhood. I, I used to believe that I had a great and beautiful childhood. I didn't feel that I, I'm sacrificing anything. And I joined the Navy. Only after four years, during the Six-Day War, or let me, let, let me say in a, in a different way, I'm not a settler, only because after the Six-Day War, when all our borders became wet, meaning Suez, the Red Sea, Aqaba Gulf, uh, Mediterranean, of course, Jordan, uh, and in the north, so uh, we felt that the whole security of our state is on our shoulders. So I decided to stay in security. My friends from my kibbutz, they went to create settlements in the Jordan Valley, in Sinai, and on the Golan Heights. This was the concept of the Labour Party. And, and we did not have a, a, a border on our east. It was the ceasefire lines from 48. So the concept was the same concept. And if this land is ours, all what we are doing is just, we are building settlements. We're expanding, hopefully, 
our borders. This was the way I understood the reality or what I saw around. We have been attacked. We have to defend ourselves. Uh, our wars are just. And it took me about 20 years to understand that this concept of Zionism is bringing us to a dead end. And it was the first intifada. Uh Thank you for that over, overview. You know, it, it's actually reading the book helped me understand something that I've often wondered about. As, as you know, Israeli Jews and, and, and diaspora Jews, like American Jews, both often will take their names for their children from, from, from Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible. But one of the things I've noticed, you know, is that the names are not always the same, you know? So for instance, the name Ehud, right? You never find American Jews given that name or Yoav, right? It's the more, it's the names from books like Shoftim from, from the more, the military characters from, from Tanakh that show up much more in Israeli Jewish names. You very rarely find them in American Jewish names. Um, but I wanted to pick up on the, on the point that you were making just at the end there about your belief growing up that you were a settler um, that 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 you were conquering, that you were that you were building the land, um, and that that was a, a, a noble enterprise. Um, um, so you have a, a quote. Um, I thought a very interesting quote um, in the book that I want to read, and um, it's from one of the things that you do in the book, which I think is wonderful, is you go and talk to people you disagree with, um, and some of those are settlers, and and you quote a right-wing settler named Uri Elitsur, and he says this uh, to people like you. He says, you expelled the Palestinians in 1948. You did not allow them to return. You established communities on top of all of their villages. After that, you built a separation fence, and then you came complaining to us, even though we never destroyed even a single village on the West, in, on the, on the West Bank in order to build a settlement. I'm not sure that last part is true, but I, I wanted to, as you know, both the right and the left will turn to people like you who are on the left in Israel who live inside the Green Island and say, who are you kidding? There is no moral difference. Uh, either you're all good or you're all bad. The people in the, in the, the secular kibbutzniks like your, you and your parents and the religious settlers in, in Ofra and Beit El. Do you think they're right? No, I don't. <clears throat> and um, and uh, what I'm trying to do in my book uh, is, is to tell you or the readers a story. But there is, um, there is a story which is behind the story. And the story behind the story is our wars. I wrote an article about it, but articles, you know, it's, um, you read in the academia. Uh, the story behind the story that I'm telling in the book is um, I believe, and I say something about it in the end of the book, um, that all what we did, all the wars, we did terrible things. But in war, when you are fighting, in order to save your life or in order to defend your, uh, you know, uh, your country, your land or whatever, is a just war. It is considered a just war, even by the international uh, uh, concept of, of a just war. Um, and, and these were the wars of Israel until 73 or probably even until 2002. Why? Because 
when we fought in 48, people tend to forget we accepted the division plan. We accepted UN resolutions. It was, we have been attacked. So during 48 and later in 67, again, we have been attacked. And later in 73, we had to defend ourselves. And if you remember uh, Khartoum meeting of all the Arab leagues, the states, uh, in uh, 67, the three knows they do not recognize the state of Israel, they will not negotiate with the state of Israel, and they will never sign peace with the state of Israel. Oh, this was the reality until somewhere between 88 to 2002. Why I'm saying it? Because what I say that we won this war, the just war, the war in all the wars, all the battles, all the operations in which we fought in order to defend ourselves against enemies who want to destroy us, who do not recognize our right to create a state for, of, its, of our own, uh, were just, but we want this war. We want this war because under the assumption that victory is the creation of a better reality or the acceptance of our enemy that we have the right to have a state of our own, etc., etc. This was agreed by all the Arab states in 2002 during the Arab League um, conference uh, in Beirut 2002, and then it became the Arab Peace Initiative. So what I'm saying all the wars or all the operations or all the battles or whatever we call it, what we are doing after is we are fighting after we won the war. So the war that we are fighting today is in order to expand our Eastern border, in order to build more settlements, and in order to deny the option for the Palestinians to build their own, their own state alongside Israel. This is not a just war, and this is why the settlers, I know that it took us many years to understand it. And I'm, I admit, even I thought until the first intifada that we are liberators, that we liberated the state, that we liberated places. Because when you study or when you learn, when you hear from your parents, stories about Ma'arat HaMachpelah and, and, and Beit, uh, Beit El and Jericho and Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall, you understand that this is yours. Only during the first intifada in a very, very specific event, by the way, uh, I've been attacked by a youngster, and then I understood the very simple reality. Yes, we liberated these places, but in these places that we liberated, that there are hours, there are millions of Palestinians that do not see us as liberators. They hate us. They see us as occupiers. We control their daily life. We humiliate them every day in every checkpoint. So we have only during the first intifada, I understood that we are on a crossroad and we have to choose whether to own the places that have been promised to us, or 
to maintain or to secure the identity of Israel as our parents dreamt about it. And it is written in our, in our Declaration of Independence, a Jewish democracy. And um, it took me more years, the idea that my kibbutz was built during a just confrontation or war. And the kibbutz of my friend will have to be evacuated or will have to be agreed with the Palestinians. Well, um, I had to meet several philosophers and I had to read their books in order to understand uh, the mistakes that all of us did uh, during the recent history. And in a way, it, it brought me, and this is in a way the, the two last chapters, uh, we have to redesign our narrative. In a way, um, the challenge that we are facing in order to make sure that Israel will maintain its identity as a Jewish democracy, we have not only to create or to remember the future, which is the ideas of the, uh, of the Declaration of Independence, we have to rewrite or to create a new narrative. Yes, it is ours, but it is not only ours. And since it is ours, but not only ours, we have to decide whether we divide this place, which is the only way I see, because otherwise Israel will not be a Jewish democracy, or to share this piece of land with everybody. And the meaning is that it will not be a Jewish state, and it will not be secure, because First of all, Islam and Judaism did not cross this huge crisis that Christians crossed when they separated between religion and state. So it will be chaos. I want to go back to your, you made a very sharp distinction between the unjust wars that you see, the kind of war uh, that, that started, you said, maybe 73, um, uh, the, certainly the occupation of the Palestinians today, and the just wars of earlier on. Um, um, but, uh, you know, as you know, because you are a man who has reached out to Palestinians and, and developed close friendships with Palestinians like Sarah Nusebe, that most Palestinians would say, listen, um, uh, by what right did we have to, did, did, did your parents and other, other, other Jews have to, have to expel us from our villages? Um, uh, most of, as you know, many of those expulsions took place before the Arab governments declared war in May 15th, 1948. They took, they were already, there were hundreds of thousands of Palestinians expelled before the Arab government, the far of the Arab armies even crossed into Israel to fight. Um, many Palestinian villages surrendered and their populations were still expelled. Um, so I, I, want, I want to just ask you to reflect a little bit on, on, how you would on how you defend the justice of those actions. Do you see them as a necessary evil? Uh, and, and, and how could we, what, what would you say to a Palestinian who says, we had been living here for, for hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years, you had no right to force us out at gunpoint? Look, in, um, in, in legal terms, and um, I, I'm 
not trying to explain it in legal terms, but I, I think that there is a point in um, the, the idea of a just war and a different idea, which is justice in war. Mm -hmm. The war of independence was a just war, period. Now, in every war, American wars, European wars, in every war, we kill people. In every war, there are events that should be, should be analyzed. We have to understand exactly what we did. But we have to make sure that we shall understand that it was a just war, even if we did horrible things during the war. By the way, I, I don't have to say because I see that everybody understands that if you compare but what we did in our wars and what Americans or, or Europeans or, or every other nation did in, in another wars, um, we, we are in a very good place. In a very I mean, we, we, we are not close to what America did or, or, or any other great democracy did during wars. So I, I'm not trying to hide from it, but I'm just putting it in proportion. Um, I, I'm not sending you back to the Indians when, when, when the Americans, uh, the, you know, today you call yourself Americans, but Europeans came to America, etc., etc. This is history. All that I'm saying that it was a just war. And yes, we did horrible things. I'm not justifying everything that we did, but it was a just war. This is the only, only way to go forward and to look for something. By the way, I'll, uh, there is an anecdote. Uh, once you asked the question, um, you didn't mention, but I think that uh, people who read the book, um, uh, when we launched our initiative with Professor Nuseiba during the Second Intifada, um, and uh, the idea was to, uh, uh, to present uh, a better future based on six parameters uh, that, by the way, were negotiated between government of Israel and Palestinian Authority. We did not invent anything. Um, and, uh, and we presented these ideas to Palestinians and Israelis. And um, I met thousands of Israelis. Sari met thousands of Palestinians. We got about 450,000 more than 450,000 signatures on both sides. And probably we even created some impact on Israeli decision makers. I have no idea. But uh, there is a story when Sari came to a, a refugee camp not far from Nablus. Um, he met with refugees. And in our, um, in our initiative, we say in order to create better future of two states, Palestinians shall return only to the state of Palestine, future state of Palestine, and Jews shall return only to the state of Israel. Now, uh, one of the refugees, um, he, uh, he raised his hand, he said, uh, there, by the way, there were hundreds of them. Uh, please, sorry, uh, tell me just, did your mother sign on your initiative? You have to remember 
Sari's mother was born in um, a, a Palestinian village that today is an, an Israeli city. Um, and um, and Sari told him, uh, no, she did not. So he said, okay, how come uh, you, uh, you, how come you, you, you are trying to convince us to sign on something that even your mother did not sign? So Sari told him, look, I'll tell you exactly what I told my, my mother, my mother, and you will decide. He said, I'm saying to my mother, look, mom, uh, what you really want is to go back in time your village does not exist anymore. You want to go, to, go, to go back in your memories to the time before 48, to your village, to your orange trees. You will not be able to do it. The dilemmas that you are facing today is to choose whether you create, you will create a better future to your grandchildren or you will go on dreaming on going back to time in time. And by the way, this person signed. So we are not looking for justice. We are looking for well, honesty, uh, reconciliation, whatever. Justice is something very, very subjective. When I say that this land belongs to all of us, and we have to decide we want to keep our identity as Jews. We have to tell our children our stories. What happened in this region during the last 5,000 years, 3,000 years, 100 years, or 30 years? But they have their own stories. And finally, we can do it in the near future only by dividing this piece of land. I want to. To, to go to the, to the 1990s when you were the head of Shin Bet, working, as you say in the book, in the sewer, um, and, and working closely with um, three Israeli prime ministers. Well, you talk about more than three, but I want to focus on the three who were involved uh, in the, the 1990s in, in particular, um, uh, Rabin, um, Netanyahu, and Barak. Um, I, um, I was- No, it was, uh, it, was, it was after the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin, I was- right. I, I was the commander of the Navy during the time of Rabin, right. but and, when and, uh, I, yeah, I, I came to Shimon Peres, uh, Barak, and Netanyahu. Right, you turned down the job under Rabin, right? At, right, right and then you took right. it under, under Peres, right? So right. I think one of the things that I found uh, striking in the book is that um, you, you, paint a, you don't paint a picture of Netanyahu as someone who was particularly interested. In, uh, in the creation of a Palestinian state, uh, who, or who, who was very sincere about trying to, uh, trying to ultimately uh, create. But you, you don't portray Barack as, as, as that um, sincere either, or, or you, you don't seem much more sympathetic to him from my reading than you do from Netanyahu. And so um, uh, I wanted to, to ask you to, to kind of compare the two of them, um, uh, Netanyahu and Barack, and also to say ab about what you think they're, how genuine you think they were in their, in their willingness to, as you say, divide the land. Um, and maybe also say something about, um, about Robin and what you think might have happened had he lived. Well, uh, I'll start with uh, 
with Rabin, um, I, I was not close to Rabin as, as much as I was to uh, Shimon Peres, Barak, and Netanyahu, so uh, I find it very, very difficult. And, you know, <clears throat> I, um, I, I don't think I can give you uh, a good analysis of what would have happened. Um, I'm not sure. Um, Rabin, uh, after, um, after uh, the assassination of uh, the massacre of 29 uh, Muslims um, in Hebron, uh, by a Jewish terrorist, uh, instead of evacuating, I don't know, uh, several dozens of families uh, from the Kasbah in Hebron, um, he, uh, uh, you know, he, um, he he did not touch any settler, um, and, uh, and and the price was paid by by three hundred thousand Palestinians. So, I, I'm not sure whether he had the political power. Um, and and I, it's it's impossible to to try to to imagine. Uh, what, what I can tell you, there is a huge difference the way I see it today and the, the way I saw it then, uh, between uh, Ehud Barak to Netanyahu. Uh, all of us um, we are doing mistakes, but the way I understood Ehud, uh, Ehud wanted very much Ehud understood uh, the danger in the future of losing our identity as a Jewish democracy as much as I did. So uh, we did not discuss it because uh, he, was, he was an elected leader and I was uh, nominated, uh, but it was clear that this is what he wants to do. Uh, he thought that Oslo was a huge mistake because of the process. By the way, he was not the only one. Um, among the, the Israeli negotiators, uh, Yossi Balin, for example, uh, uh, his, his way of thinking was very similar to Ehud Barak. He said, first, we have to agree on the final parameters, and then we have to negotiate because, you know, we, we might come uh, to the end of the negotiations um, and, and when we have nothing to sell anymore um, because we gave all the land that we control, uh, about 92% of it, uh, and now we, we start to discuss uh, the, the uh, right, right, uh, Palestinian right of return and, and borders and security and Jerusalem. So it's in, in, in some theory of negotiations, it's, this is, not to, this is not the way to negotiate. So he wanted to change, to, to upside down the process, but he did not want to change the goal. The goal that he saw was two states. And, and the mistake that I think that he did um, is that, um, yeah, there's the idea of uh, when you play this kind of game, uh, you have to empathize, not to sympathize. You have to understand your enemy or the other side. You have to understand him. You have to understand his motives. You have to understand his limitations. 
Um, and I think that the government of Israel uh, never was able, and Ehud Barak was not able to understand the conflict in the eyes of Arafat. And um, he, he used to say, okay, I'm going to give him an offer that he will not, he will not be able to refuse. And I used to tell him, look, it's not, it's not the far west. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not America. And you have to understand that Arafat today, he's in a position that he will be ready to go back to Tunisia and to start the Palestinian revolution from the beginning, just to make sure that he will not be perceived as a Palestinian traitor or collaborator who gave Jerusalem or the holy places or whatever. Uh, so he has his limits too. You have to take it in account. So it, with Netanyahu, it, it was totally different. I, I never understood what, what he really wanted. Um, and I, I just had to assume. Uh, I remember that after uh, the events of the tunnels in September, um, Maybe you should just uh, well, explain briefly what you mean by that for the, for the, for the listeners, the, the tunnels. You mean the tunnels in Jerusalem under the, under right, the, right. Under, under the Temple Mount, the Kotel. It's, uh, it's, uh, well, uh, my assumption is that, okay, uh, the, the tunnel is, um, is a tunnel that goes um, in a way uh, under the ground, but uh, along the, the Western Wall. And uh, it is a sacred place to everybody and uh, for years, uh, Rabin and later Shimon Peres and later Netanyahu tried to because it's good for, for uh, in context, in context of political process, in context of political, of, of political horizon, I thought that, that we can open it and anyhow, uh, there is a debate. Uh, I told him that um, the Prime Minister, that if he will create the right context, if he will create the right political horizon, if he will meet Arafat and will promise him something in Hebron, that was part of the agreement, by the way, uh, and will meet or will send messengers to meet the people, uh, the, the, the representative of the Waqf, um, I believe that we can create the reality in order to open the tunnel. Anyhow, um, I'm not going to back into it because uh, as a result, uh, the way he did it, um, 17 Israeli soldiers died. And, um, and it was the first wave of violence that was led by the Palestinian Authority since 93. Until then, they did not control terror, but they did not send their security people to shoot Israelis. So I remember I told him, look, uh, you are going to Washington uh, to meet President Clinton. And um, you can tell him um, the structure, the architecture of the process is totally wrong. So we hold Oslo and, um, and let jump discuss the final parameters, um, and then we shall see whether we have a partner or we do not have a partner. 
Um, well, he did not listen to my uh, advice. Uh, he went to, uh, to America and, uh, and promised Arafat uh, to give him uh, uh, places in Hebron, uh, Abu Sneina Hills, and, and then uh, went on to negotiate. And, and the message to the Palestinians was uh, that we understand only the language of power. And we surrender to Palestinian terror or to violence of the, of the, of the, um, of the Palestinian Authority. So I didn't understand what he really wants. Um, and, um, and the discussions with him was, I think that he did not understand uh, the importance of the Palestinians uh, when we cooperated, when we fought together terror. And second, uh, he did not quite understand, by the way, both of them, not Ehud Barak and not Netanyahu, they did not understand the impact of settlements on the Palestinian people. And um, we have to, I, I have to explain uh, something that everybody understands. Every political leader is, um, has to create the balance between being a politician and being a statement. So in order, when he's a politician, he's speaking in Hebrew to his people. When he's a statesman, he's speaking in Arabic, Hebrew, English to the world in order to create a better reality. Now, I think that both of them did the same mistake. They spoke uh, in Hebrew uh, to the Israelis. Uh, Ehud Barak said more than once, I built more settlements than Netanyahu. And it was very impressive to the Israeli audience, but it was almost a poison in the ears of the Palestinians. And, and we, day by day, we lost our partner. I want to I pick up there on this point that you make a, a point in the piece of arguing that Israel did have a partner, or at least that it could have had a partner. Um, in the people that you worked with. Uh, um, it's interesting that, that you know, the, inter the foreword to the book is written by Dennis Ross, um, yes. who, you know, is, is somewhat famous for having essentially written that argued that the reason that there was no deal in Camp David and Taba was because in his view, he believed that Arafat would never make a deal. Uh, um, and I think particularly, I think Dennis Ross and people like him are of the view that the Palestinian leadership would never compromise enough on right of return to make a deal possible. But it seems to me that you take a different view than, than, than your friend, Dennis Ross, on this question. So mm -hmm. I want you to, 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 to explain to those perhaps skeptical Jewish listeners uh, on this question about why you believe that, that, the, that the Arafat leadership uh, was in fact willing to ultimately make, make a deal um, for two states. No, okay, uh, I'll explain, but uh, I'm not saying that Arafat was ready to make a deal. I have no idea. But I'm saying that um, I think that the, uh, the difference uh, between uh, me and, and, uh, uh, and Dennis um, is um, the way 
we are speaking about the conflict. Um, I'm speaking, well, I, I'm not speaking for Dennis, but most Israelis, by the way, and most Americans whom I meet, they speak in language of blame. And yes, most of them, they blame Palestinians. And, um, and they're right. I'm not speaking the language of blame. I'm speaking the language of responsibility. Now, when you speak, when you use the language of blame, you are looking on your opponent. We are blaming them, they are blaming us, and we are killing each other for the last more than 100 years. And if we shall not use our dictionary, we shall go on killing each other for I don't know how many years. In language of responsibility, I start, I begin with asking myself, what can I do? Responsibility is always start with me. Did I do everything I can? If you want to ask me about the Palestinians, I can, I don't know, I can give you more stories that you ever heard about the mistakes that they did. But I couldn't care less because I know that we did not do enough in order to create partnership. And in addition, it is important because of two reasons. First of all, we have to understand that finally, the idea is not to blame them or to ask who is responsible. The idea is how to create a better reality of two states because only a reality of two states will enable us to keep our identity as a Jewish democracy. And as a, as a person who spent most of his life as a member of the security community, I can tell you it will create a safer Israel. Because if Palestinians will not have a state of their own, we shall face Palestinian terror for I don't know how many years. So all what I'm saying is that the difference that, that uh, Dennis is mentioning, he said, okay, I think that Arafat should be blamed more than Ami Singh. I have no idea. I do not measure his blame. And all what I'm saying, look, I know myself. I know that it took me many years to understand Palestinians. In retrospect, I understand today that the Palestinian recognition on the concept of two states started during the 70s. So we didn't know it. We didn't know it because we did not, probably because we didn't care. We saw them as enemy, and all what we wanted to know is about their military capabilities. But once you know them as people, you start to understand them. 
So I know the art of war. I know how to kill people. I know how to go to battle. But we Israelis, we do not know enough on the art of making peace. The art of making peace, we have to know the people. We have to empathize them. Not, we don't have to agree. And by the way, in the book, I'm trying to explain that the first time that I started to understand it was when I was in the Shin Bet. Because during so many years, when I was in the Navy, in the Navy SEALs and later the commander of the Navy, for 34 years, I saw my enemies as targets. All what I had to do is to kill them. And if I had to study something, is technology and tactics. In the Shin Bet, you have to understand, you have to know everything about your enemy. His names, his history, his family. Even a simple question, you have to know to which school he's sending his children because there is a huge difference between, between the schools of the Palestinian Authority, schools of Hamas, schools of Islamic Jihad, or in the north, schools of Hezbollah. Totally different theology, totally different military strategy. So even if we have to fight them, even in order to win them, we have to see them as human beings. And this is something that most Israelis and our leaders did not do. I wanted to talk a little bit about, about, um, the, about the, the, as you the, the war that you talked about fighting um, for in the Navy and then, and then in a different way, you know, in, in Shin Bet. You, you discuss in the book that although you are a dove and, and a man who was working for peace, um, there are those who want to hold you to account for things that you have done or been involved in. And you mention um, that you were in Holland and that lawyers for a Palestinian whose name was Al-Shami sought my arrest and extradition for torture during your days in uh, Shabak. And you say that in the footnote that the lawyers claimed that this gentleman Al-Shami um, had been put in a freezing cell, handcuffed and shackled to a chair for hours and, and stretched. So I, I, think it was, I thought it was an act of honesty for you to put that in the book. You didn't have to put that in the book. Um, but having put it in the book, I, I, I wanted to ask you about it. Is, is that his allegation of torture true? Was torture practiced by Shin Bet when you were leading it? Well, um, the, the term torture um, is, is a very complicated uh, because um, uh, in, uh, on which stage of pain um, you call it torture. Uh, now, uh, if you will ask a, a lawyer or uh, a person who studied law, he will tell you uh, from the very beginning. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll ask a very, very simple question. You know that a group of terrorists is going to kill a group of or Israeli citizens. 
Um, and you know that a person who is in our jail has information about it. And you are asking him in order to save Israeli citizens. And he's not giving any information. So what should you do? It's a question. Now I'm trying, it's complicated. It's complicated because of many reasons. Uh, the main reasons, by the way, that sometimes you know or you think you know that he has information because his neighbors told you that he has information. But you don't know the motives of his neighbors. Probably they just hate him. So we are doing mistakes. I have no idea, by the way, uh, whether what he claimed that we did to him, we really did to him. I have no idea. I don't know him personally. I mentioned it because, you know, uh, I was for almost four and a half years a director. And, and, and during this time, uh, we had a wave of, of terror, by the way, I, I describe it in, in, my, in my book uh, during, uh, uh, during my first two weeks. In, in less than two weeks, it was after three days of being in, uh, as a director of the Shilbet, um, we have a wave of terror attacks in which we lost, if I remember, uh, 57 um, Israelis died in, um, in suicide attacks and 217 wounded um, Israeli citizens, innocent people. Um, and, and it is my responsibility to defend Israelis against terror attacks. So um, yes, uh, we interrogated people in, in, in specific cases. We even uh, used what is called torture. Um, all what I can tell you is that uh, no prisoner, no Palestinian prisoner died in our jail during these years. And we lost the lives of many Israelis. In several cases, in several cases, in retrospect, I know that we could interrogate differently and probably, I will never know, probably to save Israeli lives. And I have to go with this idea all my life. And I will have to go with the opposite idea that probably we used violence or, I don't know, uh, physical violence on prisoners that probably did not know what we thought they know. So I will have to live with both. Because life in the Middle East is, is very complicated. I want to ask you one last question. Um, the, the, the book is premised on the belief that 
the road to peace, the best solution um, uh, is, is a two-state solution, is a Palestinian state next to a Jewish state. Um, yes. As you may know, uh, you, your, your deputy and later successor, Yuval Diskin, um, I think in 2013 wrote this. He said you know, about the two-state solution. He wrote, we are approaching a point of new, no return and it may be that we have already crossed it. So that was seven years ago. Um, um, tell me why you think the two-state solution that a, uh, that a two-state solution is still is still possible, and why we should not be make ourselves open to thinking about uh, alternatives in which everybody has a, equality within one equal state. Well, uh, I'll start with the end. Um, no alternative was created since uh, since we started to understand uh, that we shall have to find a, no idea, I, I don't know, political solution. Um, it was during the 20s, the 30s, international communities, um, and the only alternative was uh, to states. And, I'm saying that until now, no one, no one came with a better alternative. When I say better alternative is an alternative which is applicable in the Middle East. Um, the idea of, of one state, which is a great idea, by the way, all the people are equal, etc., we tend to forget uh, that we are looking for, we, we want to live uh, knowing that we speak Hebrew, uh, that the majority of the people are Jews, um, and, um, and we tell our children uh, our stories, and we are speaking, or, or, or we, we believe in, in our symbols, it means something to us. And, and the Palestinians are the same. So most Palestinians and most Israelis, this is what we want. By the way, the, the nightmare, the nightmare for Israelis is one state. If you ask Israelis, by the way, several months ago, we asked in a poll, do you prefer one state in which we Jews are not majority, we got four or five percent of votes who support it, and about 60 percent of votes who support two states, and all the rest are confused. I'm saying it that there is no alternative. This is my first answer. Uh, Second answer, I said something about it. Uh, we have to understand that I think that uh, many people who see the Middle East from America, um, sometimes even from Europe, but it is mainly from America, uh, they do not understand that Islam and Judaism did not cross this barrier of separating between state and religion. 
that enabled you to create a state of all its citizens with all the problems that you have or you have in you. Yes, this is still the concept. Judaism and Islam, we cannot separate between us as Jews when we see history, culture, religion, or statehood. So in the Middle East, the idea of one democracy for everybody will be a chaos. It will be either an apartheid state or something similar to Lebanon or Syria during the last 10 years. So there is no alternative. And third, look, uh, I saw the Israeli society changing. If I, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a scholar, but I saw the change in the Israeli society when Oslo was launched. I saw people who were sitting in our jail. They were terrorists. I was sitting with them like friends. We drank coffee and we decided how we can build the future reality of two states together. In our case, it was security, borders, security arrangements, etc. And it was possible. Now I can tell you today, if you'll ask Israelis, of course, uh, we, we don't see it. But on the other hand, we understand that the more people understand that it is achievable, more they support it. And the more they see that it is not achievable, they will not support it. So uh, what I'm afraid of that we shall have to face another wave of violence in order to understand that there is no other alternative and in order for us to go on to elect a leader who will lead us on the right way. Uh, Amaya Alon, thank you uh, very, very much for this conversation and for writing this, uh, this very provocative book, which I, I'm very glad to have the pleasure to read. And I wish you good luck uh, with all of your efforts at, at book promotion in the weeks and days to come. Thank you very much, Peter.